You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but for many, it is merely fiction. Join our conversation as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show, visit us online at betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome, listener, to episode four of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm so glad that you have chosen once again to join us because now, at the tail end of the Genesis creation account, we get to my favorite part, which is the advent of man. And I I may be a little biased being a member of mankind myself, but this is my favorite part of the creation account. Hey. Because, you know, what? Just because I'm a married man and I'm trying to get my wife to faithfully listen to this podcast, let's nuance that as the creation of mankind, male and female. Male and female. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Love you, Haley. (laughs) Listener, please don't cancel me. But male and female, you're absolutely right. And that other stuff, you know, with the creepy crawlies on the ground and the fish and the plants, that was all good. But now it's time for the big boys and girls. (laughs) There you go. So today we're primarily looking at Genesis 1, 26 through 30. So Gandalf, as we get started, why don't you read those verses for us? Uh, we'll do. This is Genesis 1, 26 through 30. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in it's in its fruit you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth everything that has the breath of life i have given every green plant for food and it was so and immediately finishing reading that verse it just occurs to me how often it talks about things creeping on the earth i just get this vision of um like a guy in a trench coat like doing the villain walk creeping around. That's what I think of when I see the words creeping along the earth. <laughs> I, th- I think if you hadn't mentioned creepy crawlers earlier, you wouldn't have thought of it. <laughs> yeah, probably not. So yeah, the primary theological idea that we're covering today, so pivotal to the story, is mankind being made in the image of God. I don't want to get too lost in you know theological jargon, theo speak. So let's pretend for a second that we're not doing a podcast about the Bible. What comes to your mind when you think of the language of image? I think of like like symbols like the American flag. And personally, my favorite image of the American flag is the one on the landing site in the Sea of Tranquility on the moon. Ah, that's a good one. And yeah, so flags, every nation has a flag that represents it. And, you know, potentially different flags represent different things about different nations. So so why do we have an American flag on the moon, Gandalf? Because we're better than the Soviet Union and we were able to get to the moon 
and the Soviet Union can't get to the moon. <laughs> I really wish you would have just said the same reason we have Rocky Four. <laughs> on the one hand, you could say that a flag is just fabric, but you would not go to any nation and burn their flag and try to convince them, hey, it's just f- fabric. For them, the material is communicating something immaterial about them. It, it speaks beyond itself to a deeper reality. Yeah, and even just in capitalistic America, we have in the logos of popular companies, both you know national and international, something about the logo communicates something about who the company is. For example, let me just give you a few examples here of some logos. See if I could start describing logos and you can name them. One would be, think about an A with an arrow pointing to Z. What logo would that be? We just had Prime Day. So that's Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you know? Do you know what that's all about? Do you know why? You've got this all-encompassing store. It covers everything from A to Z. I literally just understood why <laughs> I did not. I did not know that before. <laughs> but I also love, you know, that's very meta because you've also it evokes the Amazon River, which is this, you know, meandering course to get you to a destination. So that's a particularly good one. Uh, what else you got, Matt? Uh, also, here, here's a very easy one. Golden Arches. It's McDonald's. Uh, to, to my chagrin, I know that one all too well. <laughs> all right, all right. Here's one. I'm just going to name the colors. This is a huge company. Everybody knows this company. I'm just going to name okay. the colors. No pressure. In this order, in this order, blue, red, yellow, blue, green, red. Blue, red, yellow, blue, green, red. Anybody I else? have no idea. Nah, I'm not getting anything either. Uh, that would be Google, the oh. largest company in the world, or one of. But anyway, all of these different logos. Google is going to take this podcast off of their search engine because we missed that. But but those are logos, and typically logos are there to communicate something about the company that it's representing. And that's why many of them are so iconic. I think of another one being for us in Mississippi. We're not that far from Memphis, and that's the FedEx logo. Have you all ever seen the arrow inside the FedEx logo? I don't think I've ever paid attention to it. If you look in between the capital E and X of FedEx, you have an arrow that they're they're pressing forward, ah. moving forward. And they, I think they were the first company to do overnight mail. Well, you mentioned Mississippi. This is, you know, this is pertinent for us on the the 2020 ballot, we're voting on a new state flag. That's right. That's right. What it's, it's Again, it's not just what the image is, it's what the image represents. And Matt, it really goes beyond that. I think of endorsement deals. You know, brands not only have icons, they have living representatives of their brands. You know, people get paid big money to be influencers and wear particular brands of clothing to communicate something beyond the clothing itself. When I was a kid... If it was just a regular pair of tennis shoes, it was just a regular pair of tennis shoes. But if it had Michael Jordan on the side, Air Jordan, like you were the stuff if you had a pair of Jordans. That's it. I have a two-inch vertical leap, and I still (laughs) wanted the Jordans because they communicate something about you, you know, beyond yourself. I think all of this is in that ballpark of what we've been discussing in creation, and, and today especially with regard to the creation of mankind is that uh, the material points to the immaterial. You know, the visible points to the invisible. The physical bears witness to the spiritual where all of this is taking place. 
Also, not just logos for companies and stuff like that. When I think image, I think fundamentally, I think statues. In fact, I was reading something not too long ago. It was pretty funny is that it was a, a statue that kept being defaced in Scotland because it's a statue that is celebrating the legacy of William Wallace. And the reason the statue kept being defaced is because the statue's image bore the likeness of Mel Gibson. And it was apparently very <laughs> offensive to Scottish people that they, the American actor is the one whose face, the one whose face is used for their historical hero. Uh, you may take our land, but you'll never take our Mel Gibson, William Wallace statue. That's right. So to me, they need to make a meme uh, of him giving that speech. I am William Wallace. And then the people of Scotland collectively saying, no, you're not. I, I think also of other things, and I think, probably most fundamentally we think of image and likeness is we think of parents and their children that yeah. kids look like their parents, kids act like their parents. And I think that's probably the most common go-to example that we have. I get on to Haley all the time when our kids misbehave. I'll, I just say they didn't get that from me. So, so Matt, uh, why don't you, you know, you know, bring us into Genesis one twenty six and take it from there. Well, I know I'm not the first and only one that, when I read Genesis 126, and I don't remember the first time I read it, but I know for a long time in considering Genesis 126, and it says, okay, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, who is this us? Who is the us? This us, exactly. Now, that's not the point or the theme of this particular episode, but we do want to touch on it. So what is the us language there? And there's several explanations there. I'll, I'll give a few, and then I'll, I'll ex- explain in more depth the one I think is the best explanation. Uh, the first is that it is a Hebrew grammatical feature known as the plural of majesty that the singular God of Israel is referred to with the plural and saying, let us, that God is essentially, he's speaking to himself and the language is written in this way to communicate the vastness the greatness and the majesty of God. Another one would be that our more liberal friends would hold to a pre-monotheistic polytheism embedded in the text, which it's this belief that the monotheism of the Jews and later Christians came out of ancient Semitic polytheism and that there were elements that were not completely edited out of the text that communicated polytheism, which, no disrespect towards my liberal friends, I just don't think that's correct. I I think that Israel, from the beginning, was monotheistic. And just that the language of grammar, it doesn't work. It's like the point you made last week in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The the God language there, Elohim, is plural, but bara is singular. And I, I do want to concede that in Genesis 1-26, it's let us make man in our image. Us is plural, and so is make. That's a plural form of the Hebrew verb asa, to do or to make. But then when you get down to the actual creation of man, it's singular. So God created, bara, singular, man in his singular own image. So to me, that kind of weeds out that option. So it kind of leads to the other two options that are left. Because if you look in Genesis 126, then God said there, the verb being said, that's also singular. So the singular God said 
let us make man in our image. So there are two other suggestions for the plurality language. One is that it's the, an implicit reference to the Trinity, that this is God speaking to God the Son, God the Father speaking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And a lot of scholars, a lot of brilliant people land here. Think of Wayne Grudem, uh, a guy I read a lot, especially in seminary. He he believes that this is an implicit reference to the Trinity. In fact, I can remember back to youth group days, I, I had a pastor I was listening to when I, I was just a student actually pointed out that Elohim was a plural Hebrew word, and that because Elohim is a plural Hebrew word used for God, that's, in a sense, the Old Testament dropping hints about the Trinity, even in Genesis 1, which now that I understand more about Hebrew, I really don't think that's the case at all. So certainly we believe that God has existed in Trinity and as Trinity for eternity. Well, that's not what we're contesting. But again, one of the things that we're after in this podcast is how do we read the Bible as a story the way that they would have read it? Again, like like you said, Matt, it's written for us, but it was not written to us initially. And when they heard that language of, you know, let us make man in our image, it, 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 it actually begs the question from the earlier point, why have the distinguishing between the double plural in 26 and then going back to the singular in 27? It almost necessitates that someone else is there with God. And, and Matt, you had a good way of shaping this up with something in the New Testament. Yeah, so I, I think as, and I'm not alone on this, there are many, a lot of Hebrew scholars actually would hold to this view. I think this is God speaking to his divine counsel his heavenly host, other spiritual beings. I want to be clear that the only creating God in all of the Bible, the only creating being, creating being, is Yahweh. And he's manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. However, we do learn in other places that God creates the heavenly host. Colossians 1, that whether Thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, invisible. God created all of them. He created angels. He created the seraphim and the cherubim and all those things that we'll learn about later as we get into the text. So I think this is a reference here to God saying to the heavenly host, hey, watch, I'm about to create. Watch what I'm about to do. And he's announcing that he is about to make Adam. He's about to make mankind, man and woman. And I think it's an interesting parallel because if you think about okay, God announcing to the heavenly host what he's about to do, the heavenly host celebrating God's creation and doing something special, and that took place with Adam. A neat parallel is thinking of, where have I seen this before? The answer would be Christmas cards. Because if we think about Luke 2, not when the first Adam was created, but when the second Adam came into this world and was born of, born of woman— the heavenly host shows up again, and they celebrate what God is doing. They're not participating in the creation. They're not participating in the incarnation. They are just celebrating what God is doing. So I think that's the best way to understand the plural language there. Well, the fact that you're talking at all about multiple options up until a couple of years ago would have shocked me because growing up, just like you were saying in youth group, Matt, I thought that the let us make man in our image was just a explicit reference to the Trinity and that there was no question about it. There was no discussion to be had. Only after hearing you 
talk about it in sermons over the past couple of years have I learned that there are actually other interpretations at all. And I think there's some other things also in Genesis that when you think about, there's another let us that we'll come to later in Genesis 11, when God says, let us go down, and he's talking about the Tower of Babel incident. And so who does he go down with? Well, if you compare it to another story in Genesis, when God arrives, the angel of the Lord, God, arrives to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, three people show up, two of which are spiritual beings that go into Sodom and Gomorrah and bring judgment. So it it would seem that these us, these others, are some form of angel, spiritual being that, you know, we don't know uh, specifically, but more generally. Well, and yeah, and I just, again, I want to affirm the same things that you've affirmed. I absolutely believe that God has always existed as Trinity, but the human understanding of the triune God is something that has developed over time and and really hits a new stage when you get to the New Testament with how is this person, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, one and the same with the God that we've known from the Old Testament? Uh, And how does the spirit factor into that? And it's really not until the beginning of the third century, around the year 205-207, Tertullian writes a tractate on baptism that we have the first instance of the word Trinity. And even though I think it's the triune God who is creating in Genesis 1, if the Old Testament writers understood it that way, why would we go so long before arriving at that concept in turn? And so I, I really think it's the most likely option is that the triune God, singular, is announcing to his divine counsel, hey, watch what I'm about to do. And I love that parallel with the heavenly host look on, you know, looking on for the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. Well, take us forward. So one of the, the, the takeaways from this, regardless, don't get hung up in the weeds here. Don't get hung up on, hey, I believe it's the Trinity. It can't be the spirit, divine counsel, or I believe it's the plural of majesty. That's still not the main thing. The, the main takeaway point here is that man is made by the invisible God, that human beings, male and female, are imaging something in the invisible realm where God is. In the heavenlies, as it is in heaven, it is now so on earth. God is being represented by man, which is his creation on earth. Yeah, and so, and you've hit on two points I would want to make. Whatever the language, whatever your interpretive bent on the let us make man, only mankind and all of creation, all of these things that have been good, yet only mankind, male and female equally, are said to bear the image of God himself. And so, you know, we've had all these related pairs, but mankind, even within that, is created in this special relationship with God. Uh, And flowing out of that relationship is a special role to represent God on the earth. And I want to unpack that in just a minute. And as part of that special role comes a special responsibility to reign, to steward over God's creation as the visible representation of the invisible God. So let's go to relationship. When you think of man's relationship with God, what comes to mind for y'all? You know, we mentioned kids and, and parents earlier, I think, but parents are are concerned with more than what the baby will look like, right? What are some other things, Gandalf, you know, let's pull you in. Uh, what are some things that you think of for a kid as a parent? I like how we you chose the only guy in this conversation that doesn't have children to answer this. <laughs> but you're in the hot seat, so my, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but my parents were good parents. They modeled this well. Parents 
good parents. They do care about more what the baby looks like. They care about, you know, making sure that they are well fed. They make sure that they have a good upbringing. And I think most importantly, they make sure that the child is put on the correct path and they're heading the direction they should go. Yeah. So it's more just, it's more than just a statement of composition. This image is a statement of character, right? And legacy and future prospects and all of that stuff. And to me, this unique relationship of God making mankind in his image almost directly anticipates some of the language we find later in the old Testament and the new Testament with Israel being referred to as God's son like in Exodus 4, Moses tell Pharaoh to let Israel go because Israel is my firstborn son. It, it anticipates what we find in the New Testament where God comes as a man, and this man, Jesus, presents himself in relation to the God they know as the Son of God. And then Christians, you know, those who believe in Jesus upon who he is and what he's done, being adopted into God's family. It's a very relational strain throughout the Bible. And in fact, I love the relational component of that because it's like you said, Gandalf with parents. Parents, you know, I tell my kids to do things and to not do things all the time, but those commandments come within a context. I want what's best for them. And so one of the things I love on the relational front is before God ever gives a command to Adam and Eve, to the, you know, the man or the woman, male or female, the first thing it says that God does after he makes them is that God blessed them. This is a God who has their best interest at heart. Another um, thing I see here, Nathan, is that it's image and likeness. I was listening to a, a talk here recently by a Semitic scholar Michael Heiser, and he was talking about image referring to status. Because I think sometimes when we think about the image of God and made in the likeness of God, sometimes we can we think like, for instance, God does things, God, God, you know, makes choices, so we image Him by we make choices. God rules, then, and we also, in some lesser way, we rule. And there is something to that because God is going to allow man to participate in the naming of the animals and the naming of Eve and in the next chapter. But before we through our actions, imitate the likeness of God, we have the status of being in his image because of whose we are. And I think this is very important because human life, before anybody can do anything, contribute to the world, contribute to the earth, human life is a status that comes from God because of whose we are, not just the fact that we can imitate him by our actions it's the fact that we're his yeah it seems to me like what we've talked about bringing it back to previous episodes where genesis is a polemic pushing back against the idea that man exists as a product of a chaotic cold unfeeling god and exists or a pantheon of gods and exists only to toil for the sake of that those gods that's i think you're exactly right like that's one of the standout things for me in genesis is this kind of like co-regency. You know, God reigns over creation, and mankind, in the sense, as we'll talk about in a second, is created to share in that reign. In fact, Matt, to your point, you know, because of our status being created in the image of, of God, that's precisely what allows us to do the God thing. So in Genesis 1, God creates through speaking, and then in the Genesis 2 account, which we'll talk about later, 
the last thing that is made is Eve as a helpmate for the man. And the last person who speaks in the creation account of Genesis 2 is not God. It's actually what? It's Adam. It's Adam. I think that's so interesting. And I think that it really directly unfolds from what you were saying about status. I also want to talk about this Hebrew word that is used both in 26 and uh, 27, the idea that we are created in the image of God. This is the Hebrew word salem, and this is a consequential word, excuse me, a consequential word in the ancient Near Eastern world. Very often in the ancient world, monarchs, autocrats, kings would set up statues or images of themselves, and it would be the king's image but it would be attached with the name of a god. So this statue is the likeness of Baal, or this statue is the likeness of Dagon, or whoever the deity happened to be. And it was meant to communicate beyond itself, kind of like those you know brand logos we were mentioning. It was so that you understood that when this person speaks or when this person acts, they do so with the authority and with the status of that given God. It was it served to legitimate uh, royal actions, decisions, and decrees. And I think there's something to that for the creation of mankind and God's image. We are inherently filled with purpose to be the visible representatives of the invisible God in this world or on this world that he has singularly created. And also later you're going to get to Exodus and Israel's not going to be allowed to make an image or an idol representing who God is. And I think one of the fundamental things is because in Genesis, God has already made his image on the earth and it's That's humankind. Great. Yeah. That's great. In fact, the number one, you know, the number one sin or wrong that is spoken against in terms of frequency in the Bible is exactly what you mentioned. It's idolatry. Uh, so how do we go about representing God? What's the language that Genesis 1 uses? Well, he talks about ruling, reigning. Moving into your next point that you mentioned earlier is that part of our representation is exercising this word dominion over the earth as humankind is the culmination uh, in verse 26, they'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Interesting, just something that runs back in my mind real quick. It's most of the idols that are made to other gods are not in images of human beings, but rather in images of animals or animals mixed with human beings. And That's a great it's, point. It's interesting that idolatry is... Actually, we're lessening. Our, it's a step down. Our, it, it's a step down. I think Paul gets into that in Romans 1. I, I saw a great commercial about this the other day. I was watching Survivor reruns. Don't judge me. <laughs> but, you know, in, in between clips on Hulu, this commercial comes up and it's this little girl speaking to a college class. And she says, why is a human's brain better than a dog's brain? And she says, because they don't have high schools for dogs, you know? <laughs> so here's this non-human aspect of creation, and it's not as advanced. And I think you capture that with the biblical critique of idolatry. And there are many biblical critiques of idolatry, but the one you mentioned, Paul goes there in Romans 1, right? 18 mm -hmm. through 32. You're, you have an invisible God who has put his visible image on the earth through people and ultimately through Jesus Christ. But any idol that's blending that with some other aspect of creation is automatically lessening 
the image of God to something that God created man to rule over. And not rule over in an authoritarian, abusive sense, ruling over in a stewardship sense. Right. Uh, Also, and we've already mentioned earlier in talking about, when we're talking about the heavenly host, that you have the first Adam that was being celebrated. The angels celebrated the birth of the first Adam. This angel celebrated the birth of the second Adam. Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. Invisible God. So, So Adam was also in the image of the invisible God, but there is... There is difference in Jesus is the invisible God become man, is the creation of man by a visible God or by, by the invisible God. Yeah, and I love the, the Adam to Jesus bridge, and I'll, I'll close on this for my contribution to today's episode. I love the quote by Alistair Begg. He says, doxology provides the basis for dominion. Mankind is only given authority to rule over God's world insofar as mankind lives under the authority of God's word. And as this story progresses, as you know, as this podcast unfolds, we're going to talk about how every person, beginning with this first man created uh, in God's image, rebels against the authority of God's word. And it will ultimately require exactly what you just pointed to the very word of God through whom creation was spoken, taking on flesh and becoming man like us to redeem us and to restore us as sons and co-rulers. You all, I know you've heard that statement that absolute power corrupts. And absolutely. absolutely. (laughs) Yes. And absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And I think this is the story you see in the rest of the Bible is that, Dominion goes bad for all of us if we're not under the authority of God. It always goes bad when you take absolute power into your own hands. And the only one who was able to wield absolute power and yet remain completely in the, under the authority of his Father is Jesus. So it's just exciting to see where all this is headed. All right, guys, that's about all the time we have here so we're going to go ahead and wrap up and i just let me say i love being a part of this podcast and i love the things that i hear in it and the things that i've heard in this episode are that male and female nathan (laughs) mankind (laughs) thank you are made in the image made in the image of god we were made as visible representations of the invisible god and that we have a relationship with god and his creation and that god has given us dominion inspired by his character and that this relationship is setting the stage for what is coming later on in the story absolutely absolutely more good stuff to come great talk that that should be that's the whole tagline of the bible more good stuff to come well thank you listener for tuning in please join us next week you have a great day bye later shalom thank you nathan You've been listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. If you like what you've just heard and want to support the show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a positive review on whatever platform you're listening. If you have questions or want to contact us, you can visit our website at www.betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com.